This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it. That's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. It's great to be with you again. Well, throughout the history of the world, nations have been ruled by kings. But the early Americans, as we know, threw off this idea in the Declaration of Independence. And here's part of what it says. When a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies. And such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. And it goes on to say these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown. Now, in setting up our constitutional republic, we, the people, declare that we rule our country. But is America losing that idea? And is there a connection between the use of tactics that caused so many countries to fall into communist hands and the tactics being employed on Americans today? We're going to talk about it with William J. Federer, nationally known speaker, best-selling author, president of Amerisearch Incorporated, and host of the American Minute radio feature. And he is here to talk about his new book, a really important book, Who is the King in America? Bill, it is great to have you here. Welcome. Janet, great to be with you. Well, we have no king, obviously, but do you think most Americans today still remember why the colonists threw off the reins of the crown? Well, I don't think so. And, you know, when we look at history, there's only about 6,000 years of recorded history. Writing was invented around three or 4,000 B.C., Sumerian cuneiform on clay tablets in the Mesopotamian Valley. So three or 4,000 B.C., and we're around 2,080, that's around five or 6,000 years of records, human right. beings writing down human records. And in a sense, uh, 6,000 years is not that long. It's only 60 people living 100 years each back-to-back. We've all met someone who's lived 100 years, maybe a grandma. Okay. We're talking 60 grandmas, and you're all the way back to the beginning of recorded human history. What do these records show? The records show that power continually wants to concentrate into the hands of one person. And whether it's a Nimrod Tower of Babel or an Alexander the Great or the Egyptian pharaohs or the Chinese emperors or the Indian Maharajas or Julius Caesar, Genghis Khan, Attila the Hunt, each generation, the, the, the reiteration is like they keep wanting to rebuild the Tower of Babel yeah. with a new Nimrod on top. And if it wasn't for, for death, uh, one of these would have the whole world under their thumb by now. Yeah, that's so, right. And in a sense, communism is nothing more than dictatorship, right? The communist uh, dictators uh, control the country like a king, and the communist party members are the new royalty. They get to live in the nice houses, and then the people are the peasants. So whether you call it a, a name or not, power concentrates. 
And, uh, and I think this goes back to the fall in the garden and Cain, Kill, and Abel and selfishness coming into the human DNA. So you put some babies in a playpen, one takes the rattle from the others. You put some kids on a playground, one of them is the bully. Put some people in the woods, one of them's the Indian chief, and put them in an inner city, one of them's a gang leader. And as we see, it's a hierarchical system. If you're friends with the king, you're more equal. If you're not friends with the king, you're less equal. And if you're an enemy of the king, you're a slave or you're dead. It's called treason. And this is the norm, and as you mentioned in the intro, the king of England... Clearly, there's a global goal in mind, but when our founders broke away, the king of England had the largest empire. He was the most powerful king that planet Earth had ever seen. He controlled all of India, a quarter of the world's population right there, Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, British Guyana, Canada, and America. And when America's founders got the chance, they wanted to set up a government as far away from a king as possible. So they flipped it and made the people the king. So a republic is the people or king ruling through representatives. So Governor Morris, the signer of the Constitution, said the magistrate is not the king, the people are the king. John Jay, the first chief justice, said the people of this country are the sovereign. Uh, even Lincoln, in his debate with uh, Stephen Douglas, said the people of these United States are the rightful masters of both Congresses and courts. Another signer of the Declaration was James Wilson. He said sovereignty resides in the people. They have not parted with it. I love the quote from Grover Cleveland. The sovereignty of 60 millions of free people is the working out of the divine right of man to rule himself. Hmm. Um, Jefferson said, the chief justice says there must be an ultimate arbiter, decider, somewhere. True, there must. The ultimate arbiter is the people. And so when we realize this, uh, the people have been asleep. And then in the book, I bring out an interesting angle on it, uh, and that's who's the counselor to the king. Right. And uh, 70% of Americans identify themselves as Christian, which means they go to church uh, at least every now and then, which puts the pastors in America in the position of counselors to the king. And, uh, you know, there's an old picture of a... Uh, Bishop Ambrose, St. Ambrose, back in 379 A.D., uh, the Roman Empire is now Christian, and the Roman Emperor is Theodosius, and he's going to church in Milan, Italy, with Ambrose as his pastor. Could you imagine being <laughs> Bishop Ambrose, St. Ambrose, and having the Roman Emperor in your church on Sunday? Wow. Guess what? That's exactly what we have in America. Uh, the people are the king, 70% of them are Christian, they're going to church, and the pastors in America are counseling them. And you have two types of counselors. One says, stay asleep, and the other says, wake up. Yes. <laughs> and um, I, I'm brought to mind the picture of um, the movie, The Lord of the Rings. And there's a scene of a King Theodon, and he has his spell cast on him. He's got gray hair, gray eyes. He's decrepit, sitting on his throne. And he has two counselors in this scene. One is this ugly guy named Wormtongue, who's whispering in his ear, saying, stay asleep, don't get involved. Yes, your kingdom's being overrun, but just wait a little longer, and it's all going to be over. And then there's another counselor named Gandalf, and he comes in and casts the devil out of the king. And right before your eyes, the king starts to wake up. His eyes get clear, his hair gets short. He looks around, he says, dark have been my dreams of late. like, yeah, you've been out of it with a spell cast on you. So you have two types of pastors in America. One says, stay asleep, shirk your responsibility. And uh, another comes and throws a bucket of ice water on his congregation and says, wake up. You don't just have the right to vote in America. You will be held accountable to God for what happens in America. Yes, that's really sobering. But you say, and I rightly, I mean, I completely agree, we've really lost our collective memory, a lot of us as Americans, as our freedoms are being taken right out of our hands. What about the the role of the pastor in reminding us what our freedoms have always been and how important it is as Christians to stand up for our rights that God gave to us? 
Well, it's interesting you talk about losing memory. There's actually a communist tactic to help people lose their memory. It's called deconstruction. And it's where you separate a people from their past, get them into a neutral where they do not remember where they came from, and then you brainwash them into the future you have planned for them. And so it's a sales technique. If I was a toothpaste salesman, the first thing I would do is say negative things about the toothpaste you are currently using. You're still using that old stuff. It'll eat the enamel off your teeth. Ooh, you're repulsed by it. Now I got you into the neutral. You're sort of open-minded. What are all the toothpaste out there? And then I can give you my pitch for this tartar control breath freshener stuff. So what they do is they apply this culturally and they go into the classrooms and they tell the students, well, the founding fathers took land from Indians. They were chauvinists. They owned slaves. And ooh, the students are repulsed by them. Now you got the kids into the neutral. They're sort of open-minded. What are all the belief systems out there? And then you can give them your pitch for LGBT or socialism or Islam. And so we see Europe went through this. Europe went from a Judeo-Christian past, right? It all used to be Catholic and Protestant Reformation with Jewish neighborhoods. And then Jewish went into a secular neutral with the French Revolution and Robespierre, the the head of their homeland security, uh, putting a prostitute in Notre Dame Cathedral, covering her with a sheet and said, this is the goddess of reason. Let's worship her. They chop off 40,000 heads in Paris and Napoleon spreads this French secularism all around Europe and Europe becomes secular and it's free sex. Anything goes, the gay agenda. And now Europe is becoming Islamic yes. with Mohammed being the number one name given to newborns in London, Brussels, Milan. And, uh, and so we see Europe's gone from Judeo-Christian to secular gay to Islamic. So really, the whole transgendered agenda is simply a creative way to cut ties with the Christian past, but it's quickly co-opted by Islam. Yes, exactly. So we need to get our memory back. We do need to get our memory back. And I really want to explore what you just said in a little more detail when we come back from the break, because you have really nailed it. When you see bringing people to a secular neutrality leading into further indoctrination on other matters, like you mentioned, the LGBT agenda and then Islam, people scratch their heads and they say, well, how in the world could you have Theresa May, the British prime minister, saying that an Islamic attack had nothing to do with Islam and yet at the same time say we will stand up for our values? You begin to ask the question. And what are the British values anymore? So we're going to come back right after this on Janet Mefford today. Bill Federer with us. Who is the king in America? Stick around. We'll be back. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. What did you pray for today? Good health, safety, maybe to meet a goal? Those are good things to pray for. But pastors and evangelists in the Middle East aren't praying for material blessings or for an end to the persecution or difficulties they face. Rather, they're praying for copies of God's Word so that believers will be spiritually nourished and strengthened to live out their faith in this challenging part of the world. Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ in places like the Middle East, Asia, Africa, and and Latin America live each day without their very own Bible. But you can send one today. Give one Bible for only $5, 20 Bibles for $100, or 200 Bibles for $1,000. Whatever you'd like to give, you can become a Bible sender by calling 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-W-O-R-D. 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com. 
Open enrollment is here, and choosing a health care program is an important decision for you and your family. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward health other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. You can find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. My guest is Bill Federer. He's out with a great new book, Who is the King in America? And Who are the Counselors to the King? And we're exploring a little bit of human history, recorded human history anyway, from the last 6,000 years. We have seen many, many, many kings rise and fall. But we have a different country. We have founders who were brilliant and who understood we didn't want to live under tyranny. And yet, look where we are now. We see all sorts of people trying to undermine and fundamentally transform America, as has been stated uh, in the past. So let's talk a little bit about what you said about Europe, Bill, because this is such an important point. We just had this London attack, a jihadist went after people, killed a bunch of people, injured a bunch of people, and the British Prime Minister stands up and says, this has nothing to do with Islam. This would have been unthinkable. A Winston Churchill standing up after something like that and saying, this has nothing to do with Islam. How do you see the the European mind being co-opted here? Well, it's interesting. Uh, Muslims commit these terrorist attacks, and politicians are quick to assure us that those terrorists do not represent true Islam. Yet, in many cases, the terrorists themselves are yelling Allahu Akbar, and they claim they do represent true Islam. Who can tell us what true Islam is? One person, Muhammad. We put his life under a microscope, and we see it goes through three stages. Muhammad was a religious leader in the pagan city of Mecca from 610 A.D. to 622 A.D. He only makes 70 converts. He gets converts confrontational. The people of Mecca chased Muhammad out of town for disturbing the peace. He has nowhere to go. He is a Muslim refugee. He goes north 210 miles to a Jewish city called Medina. They're nice. They let Muhammad in as a Muslim immigrant. He goes into the minority neighborhoods where people have grievances against this Jewish-controlled city, and he organizes a following. We're familiar with the term of organizing in the community. When his following gets sufficiently large enough, he goes to the Jews and pressures them to accommodate him and his followers politically. And they do. They make a treaty. Now Muhammad's a political leader in addition to being a religious leader. When Muhammad's followers get chased out of Mecca for disturbing the peace, they're Muslim refugees. They go to Medina, the Jews let him in as Muslim immigrants, and Muhammad now allows his followers to rob the caravans headed to Mecca in retaliation for the Meccans chasing them out of town. So where Jesus said, if they take your coat, give them your shirt, his attitude was, if they take your house, you retaliate, take their caravan. He has 300 warriors, 
They rob caravans. He gets a whole chapter of the Quran from his Allah, it's Surah 8, chapter 8, on how to distribute booty from robbing caravans. Muhammad gets a fifth of the booty. So the Meccans send a thousand soldiers to escort and protect their caravan. Muhammad, with 300, defeats them at the Battle of Badra in 624 AD. This amazing victory, having been outnumbered three to one, convinces Muhammad to be a military leader. He fights in 66 battles and raids in the next eight years before he dies. He kills 3,000 people. He beheads 700 Jews in Medina. So within five years of Muhammad coming into the Jewish city of Medina, there's not a Jew left in the city of Medina. They were chased out, killed, or enslaved. Within five years of his death, every pre-existing culture in Arabia is wiped out. In the next 50 years, the Muslim warriors conquered Jerusalem, which had been a Byzantine Christian city for three centuries since Constantine. Muslims conquered Syria, which had been the first country to completely be Christian, evangelized by the Apostle Paul. The name Christian was first used in Syria until Caliph Umar conquered it. Egypt was completely Christian evangelized by Mark that wrote the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, until Amir ibn Alas conquers it. And then there used to be 250 Catholic dioceses along North Africa in the 7th century. Boom, all conquered by the Umayyad Muslims. And then in the year 711, they cross the Strait of Gibraltar, conquer Spain in 10 years, carry away over a million into slavery. Uh, the Pope puts out a plea that anybody that could fight should join Charles Martel, and he stops the Muslims at the Battle of Tours. He was the grandfather of Charlemagne. Uh, he stops them in the year 732 A.D., exactly 100 years after the death of Muhammad in 632 AD. They go from Arabia to Paris in a 100-year military campaign. And since this is the first century of Islam, there are Muslims that look back to that as the pure example of how a Muslim is supposed to act, the same way Christians look back to the first century of Christianity as the pure example of how Christians are supposed to act. Right. And then the, the Turks convert to Islam. They invade into what is today Turkey. All seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation were wiped out by the Muslim Turks. Ephesus, Colossae, Galatia. These Greek Christians beg the West for help. The West sends help. It's called the Crusades. They go on for two centuries. And when the Crusades end, the Muslims pick up where they left off. They invade into Eastern Europe and surround Vienna. And they conquer Constantinople, cutting off the land routes to India. And so that's when Columbus set sail looking for a sea route. Columbus would have never set sail, and we never would have called Native Americans Indians, because he gave him that name, had the Muslim jihadists not conquered the Central Asia and Constantinople, cutting off the land routes to India. Uh-huh. But then it sort of ties into America. And so um, in 1529, 100,000 Muslims surround Vienna. And the Reformation had just started a few years earlier in 1517 by Martin Luther. So the most powerful guy in Europe, is the Catholic Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V of Spain. And uh, he controls this global empire of Spain, the Spanish, Netherlands, Austria, Italy, the New World. The Philippines are named after his son, King Philip of Spain. And so Charles V is faced with a double dilemma. Protestant Reformation on one hand, Muslim invasion on the other hand. So he decides to do something unique. He makes a deal with the Protestants. It's called the Peace of Augsburg of 1555. It's the first treaty ever to recognize Protestants, and it has a little Latin phrase that had enormous repercussions. What was the phrase? Cuius regio, ius religio, which means whose is the reign, his is the religion. In other words, look, Protestant king, believe whatever you want. Let's just work together against these Muslims who are invading Europe because they want to kill us all. It worked. It stopped the invasion, but in the next century, different kings decided to believe different things. And so northern Germany and Sweden were Lutheran. Switzerland, Calvinist. England, 
Anglican, Scotland, Presbyterian, Holland, Dutch Reform, Switzerland, Calvinist, and of course, at least Spain, France, uh, you know, stayed Catholic. But Europe was thrown into this mass migration of people shifting from country to country simply for conscience sake because they didn't believe the way their king did. Those were the ones that spilled over and founded colonies in America. And they had the same thing over here. It was more or less one denomination per colony. Right. It's like it's incredible. And when you, you lay it out like that throughout history, we understand a lot more. But here we are at this juncture. We have people who are employing tactics, who are being subversive. People talk about the shadow government efforts and the left trying to undermine America and undermine the laws and undermine the Constitution. And even though they are out of power at the moment, uh, they're determined to continue on. What about, what do you see when you look at history in terms of where America is going to go, this is really a critical moment in history, isn't it? Well, it is. And uh, there's a, a blueprint uh, in the Bible. Why, why do I say that? After the Renaissance and Reformation, there was a hundred year Hebrew revival before you got to the Age of Enlightenment. So all these scholars in Europe, uh, Hugo Grotius, John Locke, um, James Harrington, John Selden, what are they studying? They're studying the Hebrew Republic. And so this was the thought in Europe at the time that the New England colonies were founded. So you got Thomas Hooker. He founds Hartford, Connecticut. And his uh, He's not a king-appointed pastor. Uh, he's a, a congregational separatist pastor. And so the people come to him and they say, Pastor, how do we do the government thing? And instead of it being, okay, top-down uh, thing, it's a polarity change. He says it's the bottom-up. So he gives a sermon, and he says the foundation of authority is laid in the free consent of the people. He goes back to Deuteronomy. He goes back to Moses telling the children of Israel, how can I alone bear your burden? Take you, wise men, known among your tribes, and I'll make them rulers over you. This was an election process. So we look back. Israel, when they came out of Egypt around 1400 B.C., they came into the Promised Land. For 400 years, Israel did not have a king. This is literally the first instance in recorded history of an entire nation with no king. Mm-hmm. Egypt had pharaohs, China had emperors, India had maharajas, Mesopotamia had you know King Og and Bashan or whatever. And here's an entire nation with no king. Where there's a king, if you're friends with the king, you're more equal. You're not friends with the king, you're less equal. You're an enemy of the king, you're dead. In Israel, there was no king, and the law specifically says there is no respect of persons in judgment. Rich or poor, everyone is the same, male, female, made in the image of the creator. Lo and behold, Israel is the beginning of the concept of equality on planet Earth, that everyone you see is equal to you. Israel is the first nation with private land ownership, because wherever there's a king, you never really own the land. It's always conditional of you staying on the nice side of the king. You cross the king, he'll take away the land and kill you. In Israel, the land was permanently titled to the families. Israel had no standing army. You have a king, he has an army to enforce his will. In Israel, every man was armed and in the militia and ready at a moment's notice to defend his family and his community. Ancient Israel had no police. Everyone was taught the law. Everyone enforced the law. It was like everybody was deputized. Israel had no prisons. Remember Joseph wasting away in prison in Egypt? Mm -hmm. In Israel, the law says when a crime is committed, you get the trial right there at the the city gates. And, of course, there's a city of refuge you could run away to, but it happens right then. Israel had a bureaucracy-free welfare system. In Egypt, people were selling their souls to the Pharaoh for a handout of grain. In Israel, when somebody harvested their land, they left the gleanings for the poor people to pick through. This way, the poor were taken care of without some political leader collecting everything and doling it back out to those who can help them stay in power. Yep. And Israel's system worked 
as long as the priests taught it. When the priests stopped teaching the law, the high priest Eli, his own sons are sleeping with women in the tent of meeting, the whole thing falls apart. And the people go to Samuel the prophet, and they say, this is not working anymore. And Samuel cries, and the Lord tells him, they did not reject you, they rejected me. Oh my goodness. And so they get a king, King Saul, he turns around and kills most of the priests, takes away their land, and so forth. And so we, we one incident where Saul is pouting that his son made a league with David, and uh, he said, nobody cares. And Doeg the Edomite says, I saw David get some food from these priests at Nob. And Saul says, bring the priests here, tells his men to kill him. The men hesitate. Why? Because they're operating under this this old system that says you're accountable to God to follow the law. The law says you need two or more witnesses before you condemn somebody to death. And Doeg says, King, I'm going to surrender my conscience to you. You tell me to kill, I'll kill. And so we see when a king takes over, he wants your conscience. He wants you to give up your deeply held religious convictions. Something like maybe give up uh, marriage being a man and a woman. Maybe give up uh, a male and female bathroom. They want you to give those up. Why? Because they want yes men. They want to surrender your, your conscience. That's it. Well, Bill Federer, great book, Who is the King in America? Thank you so much, Bill. We'll be back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back to Janet Mefford today. It is Thanksgiving week. The kids are out of school and we're all gearing up for turkey and trimmings and maybe some football. And for many of us, Thanksgiving Day is a day when we give thanks to God for his grace and for his blessings, even as the day has seen controversy and boycotts over the years. But my next guest notes that Thanksgiving has emerged as Americans' best loved holiday. And so we're going to examine how Thanksgiving came about in the modern experience and why it is so beloved and celebrated on into today. It's so great to have with us Melanie Kirkpatrick. She is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and a former deputy editor of the Wall Street Journal's editorial page. Her book is called Thanksgiving, the Holiday at the Heart of the American Experience. And Melanie, it's so good to have you here. Thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be with you and happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you. It is a wonderful holiday and it's really interesting in your book how you trace the changes that have happened since the 1600s. What do you make of the endurance of Thanksgiving? I think it is because everybody loves it. It's a time to uh, for family and friends to gather and give thanks, uh, which is a profound uh, and very basic human impulse to give thanks uh, to the Almighty for all of our blessings. Absolutely, and you know, it's and of course, the feasting part of it uh, shouldn't be left out either. Everybody <laughs> likes a good meal. Absolutely, and it's funny too because everybody, you know, I learned in school about the pilgrims and the pilgrims and the Indians. They called them Indians back then, but the pilgrims and the Indians sitting together and having a festive meal. And over the years, I've learned that maybe the first grade, second grade version that was always told to us wasn't completely accurate. What What is the truth about how the first Thanksgiving came together? Oh, the 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 stereotype of the first Thanksgiving of, of a happy time of um, the two peoples, the English and the Native Americans, enjoying themselves is basically true. Um, it was a uh, they, they they were at peace. It was a time of fellowship, and uh, you know all the 
the tragic things that were to befall the Native Americans were a couple of decades away. Right. So this the stereotype's essentially true. Right. Well, and here you have the whole history of the pilgrims, how they came over here for religious freedom. And yet when they came to the New World, they really, I don't think, knew how bad it and tough it would be for them. So they were very dependent upon the Native Americans even to oh, be able to eat, weren't they? Yeah, yeah absolutely. The um, Wampanoag Indians are really the, the heroes of the first Thanksgiving story. They're the ones who um, provided uh, the, know- the knowledge and the know-how to the Indians to help them with that first harvest. They also showed them places to hunt and fish. Um, so they were they were very welcoming. And um, uh, you think about that first Thanksgiving, which, by the way, the pilgrims would not have called a Thanksgiving. For the pilgrims, the Thanksgiving Day was entirely a, a day of worship, right. um, a day of giving thanks for a specific blessing, right. and would have you know, they would have been in attendance at, at worship for most for much of the day. Um, the the day that they spent the three days that they spent with uh, the Indians in 1621 um, has of course become known to as the first Thanksgiving. But um, if you could ask a pilgrim if that was a Thanksgiving, he, he would have looked at you askance. <laughs> right, because they had different days of Thanksgiving, didn't they? That was part of their regular worship. They were many of them separatists who came over here and yep. and, and Calvinists, and that was what they believed, that, that there mm-hmm. were, was not one day of Thanksgiving, but many. That's right. And that usually a Thanksgiving was called for a very specific blessing. And what, for example, a rainfall or a military victory or a recovery from an illness or something like that. And there was a debate later in the 17th century um, when um, various places started naming days of general Thanksgiving, that is, just thanks for um, continuing blessing, blessings. There was a debate over this, what theological, uh, whether that was a good thing theologically. Right. Some people argued that um, it would encourage people to uh, take God's blessings for granted if you just had a general Thanksgiving. It was better to hold a Thanksgiving for you know, after a specific event. Wow. Yeah, well, it's funny. When you mentioned that it was three days of feasting it, back in 1621 with the Indians, we always thought about it as one meal, and it wasn't even necessarily in the fall. But what went on? What do we know specifically? Because I know, I think you said there were only really two people who had left accounts of the first Thanksgiving. That's right. Yeah, what do we really know about what they well, did? There are two eyewitness accounts, and we know that um, while the pilgrims were um, feasting, they probably ate outdoors because all they had was a little, um, uh, one little structure that they had uh, built. Um, uh, We know that there were about 53 pilgrims. That was half the number that had arrived on the Mayflower. And um, as they were, as they were there, 90 Indian warriors, Hmm. men, you know, armed, arrived. And you can imagine what the pilgrims were thinking. (laughs) As these guys approached, they would have thought, you know, is this friendly or not? They thought they had friendly relations with the Indians, but you never know. So the Indians brought um, five deer, which would have um, fed the entire group for quite a few meals. Um, again, that's another 
example of the generosity of the Wampanoan and also kind of a presages the um, the tradition of all of the people bringing things to a Thanksgiving meal. Okay. And uh, they had, um, at one point, they uh, did what uh, a pilgrim described as exercised their arms. That is, they had a dis- like a shooting display. And you have to think now, that were the pilgrims just showing the Indians what they could do, or were they also giving them a subtle warning about <laughs> um, how, uh, you know, if things don't stay so happy, you know, we can defend ourselves. Yeah. Um, so I think there must have been some mutual wariness, uh, even though it was a, a time of fellowship. I think they were probably a little wary of, of one another. Wow. So, th- so they had deer. What about turkey? Did they have any turkey at all? Probably. There is, um, in one of the accounts, there's a reference to wild turkey. But um, it certainly wasn't the uh, the star of the meal the way it is today. But there could very well have been turkey. There, are, um, this is kind of fun to to research the culinary history. Um, but they they also had a lot of seafood, um, mussels, oysters, fish. Um, they probably had other fowl such as duck and geese, and we know that the early English settlers also shot and and ate such fowl as um, as eagles and swans. Wow. So I know uh, um, they did not have cranberry sauce. Uh, they might have had cranberries, but you can't really. They're so sour, you can't really eat a cranberry without sugar. And the pilgrims uh, probably did not bring sugar with them because it was very expensive. Um, No potatoes, um, sweet potatoes or white potatoes, because they did not grow in um, that part of um, the North American continent at that time. Um, No apples. Uh, Apples are not native to uh, North America, um, and it took a few decades before uh, the English could plant and grow apple trees uh, Hmm. before they could have apple. Wow. And probably Um, no pumpkin pie, I would imagine. No, they might have (laughs) had pumpkin because that was um, indigenous, but it would have been uh, roasted or cooked in a stew or something. It would not have uh, been in a pie because uh, although the pilgrims knew about pie, pie was popular in England, they didn't have any wheat flour. Ah. Okay, that well, that'd be hard, wouldn't it? If you didn't right, right, right. <laughs> that is so interesting. And you know, you're so right about that, Melanie, because the culinary history in and of itself is very interesting. I would imagine most grocery stores would have a difficult time saying, get your deer now. I don't think that <laughs> <laughs> probably right. would resonate the way turkey does today. But you know, there's so much more to the history of Thanksgiving since 1621 and some of the traditions we enjoy today. And I want to get into that when we come back from this break. We are talking about Thanksgiving, the holiday at the the heart of the American experience. Melanie Kirkpatrick with us, and we'll return right after this.
Open enrollment is here, and choosing a health care program is an important decision for you and your family. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward health other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. You can find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. What's it like when a pregnant mom sees her baby for the first time? It all came down to the ultrasound. And I saw this little lima bean looking thing with a halo, which I thought was incredible. A baby wasn't really in the plan for this young mom. After seeing a halo on her baby on ultrasound at a preborn center, she was still leaning towards abortion. And I got to hear the heartbeat and I got chills. In that moment, I just felt God's arms come around me and hug me and tell me that it was going to be okay. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. Ultrasounds save lives. Would you join with Preborn in helping moms to choose life? For $140, you can help rescue five babies' lives. And now through a matching gift, your gift is doubled, rescuing 10 babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today, and if you're like me, you're probably in the midst of your shopping and gathering things together, decorations and food preparations for Thanksgiving. It's a wonderful time of year where we give thanks to God and have great meals and enjoy all sorts of other traditions like football and um, lots of fun things. It's been reduced to Turkey Day for some people, but it is a very enduring American tradition. We're talking with Melanie Kirkpatrick about it, and Thanksgiving is her book, The Holiday at the Heart of the American Experience. So you wander through and tell a lot about the kind of the political uh, implications and the political developments really regarding Thanksgiving, which I found really interesting, Melanie, because I hadn't known some of this stuff. When George Washington, for example, proclaimed our first Thanksgiving, I hadn't realized there, there was really a controversy involved there. What happened? That was a very surprising development, I thought. Um, it was the first Congress. Uh, it, it had been meeting in Manhattan, in downtown New York, in Federal Hall, since March 1789. And September comes along, and they're about to take a break. When a congressman rises to his feet and proposes a resolution to go to President Washington and ask him to declare a day of national thanksgiving. Well, I was here's the surprising part. Members of Congress objected to this. Hmm. Some said on two reasons, and these are reasons that you you can recognize today in our own political discussions. One had to do with executive power. The argument was that the Constitution did not give Washington, did not give a president the authority, a president the authority to call a national Thanksgiving. That that 
authority really belonged to the individual governors of the individual states. So that was one objection. The second objection had to do with religion. And because um, Thanksgiving is a religious holiday, the argument went, it was inappropriate for the government to get involved in any way, including naming a day of Thanksgiving. Wow. In the end, the objections were overcome. The vote was positive, and um, a delegation from the House and the Senate went to Washington, who then did a really smart thing. He was a, he was a wise man in so many ways. He issued an, a, a proclamation for a day of national thanksgiving, and he sent copies of it to the governors of the individual states, but he didn't tell them to celebrate it. He requested them to do so. So I think that was a tip of the hat to the discussion that had gone, uh, taken place in Congress. And he also did something else, Janet, that was interesting. His Thanksgiving proclamation was religiously inclusive. And um, he could very easily have just made it Christian because that, of course, was the predominant um, faith by far. But instead, he included uh, people of all faiths. Interesting. And so when you go down through the years, you mentioned like Lincoln called for all Americans to mark the same Thanksgiving Day at a very contentious time in history. That was another high point, really. Yes, yes. Um, After Washington... the Thanksgiving, the, the, the Thanksgiving habit for presidents kind of died out, and it was left to the individual governors to do it. And virtually every state did celebrate a Thanksgiving, but it would be on a, a different day. They didn't coordinate. But um, when Lincoln came along, he called a national Thanksgiving for 1863. It was, a, um, of course, a very bloody year in American history. It was in the middle of the Civil War. Americans were shooting each other, were killing each other. And yet Lincoln decided he was going to issue this proclamation calling for a thanksgiving for our general blessings. Can you imagine you know, everybody, you know, uh, just about everybody had lost a relative or a friend in this war, and yet here was Lincoln, Lincoln trying to point the way toward peace and um, calling on Americans to give thanks for um, the good things in their lives. Yeah, that's extraordinary when you consider the time. Oh, absolutely. So now when you bring it into the modern era, there have been a lot of things that have come up, as you talk about in the book, and and boycotts and day of mourning, you know, as mentioned about the uh, New England Indians uh, boycotting Thanksgiving. What about Thanksgiving in the modern context? How do you see... Thanksgiving regarded now? Is it fundamentally changed from, you know, not even 1621, but from previous centuries? I think the the basic elements of Thanksgiving are the same. It's a time for family to get together. It's a time of good fellowships, certainly a time for feasting. Um, None of that has changed. And most of all, I think the the aspect of gratitude has also remained the same, however, in very different form. The original Thanksgivings were uh, heavily religious, almost exclusively exclusively religious, and now the um, religious aspects are, 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 are... 
expressed in a different way. It used to be that everybody went to the house of worship on Thanksgiving Day. Today, you don't see that as much. Um, But I think people, there's one day a year that they say grace around their dinner table. It's Thanksgiving Day. Yeah, I think you're right about that. What about football? How did this become such a big tradition? Obviously, you know, it's been a big tradition for as long as I can remember. But how did football, just because people were home eating, they knew it was a good time to put games on the TV? (laughs) (laughs) No, it actually goes back even farther than that. The first American football game took place in 1869 between Rutgers and and Princeton. Rutgers won. And uh, not long after that, um, Princeton and Yale played a game on Thanksgiving Day in the 1870s. And then in the 80s, that game moved to New York City, where it became uh, just a, a, a such a popular event. And you know how New York uh, trends kind of take over the whole country. <laughs> yes. And it, this football mania began in New York. And by 1890 or the early 1890s, there were 5,000 football games being played on Thanksgiving Day around the country. Oh, wow. So that was really the groundswell of, of the beginning of the groundswell of, of enthusiasm for the sport. Um, um, and it, was, it, it, too, was controversial. It's kind of like the um, controversy over Black Friday today. Mm-hmm. People argued that football detracted Americans from the true meaning of Thanksgiving. Yeah. Um, wow. And uh, this was debated. And, of course, uh, we know that uh, football um, is still with us. Yes. And I, th- I think people have come to uh, find their own balance among the competing factors of the day. Yeah, I think so, too. I think so, too. You know, one of the things that you talk about as well is the link between the first Thanksgiving and young immigrants who can relate to this idea of people Mm -hmm. settling in a new land. I thought that was very interesting. How have you seen recent immigrants react, for example, to the Thanksgiving story? What have you heard about the connection they feel? I went to a high school, a public high school in New York, in Queens, New York, called uh, the Newcomers high school. And it's a school for uh, immigrants who have just come to this country and the kids learn English. And once their English is good enough, they can move on to a different high school. Um, And I interviewed them about Thanksgiving. And I was not prepared for the responses I got. But these kids had a profoundly personal understanding of what it meant to um, give thanks on Thanksgiving Day. They um, Thanksgiving has for many years been a kind of quasi patriotic holiday, and for these kids, um, that was certainly the case. It demonstrated their um, it kind of it was a, it was their entry into uh, America in a, in a kind of formal way because they were adopting this tradition. I remember one boy telling me that he was like the pilgrims. He came here for religious freedom. He was he said he was from Tibet, a country that hasn't formally existed since 1950 when China invaded it. And he said he was like the pilgrims because they too were seeking religious freedom. He came here so that he could uh, practice Tibetan Buddhism freely. And then a girl spoke up and said, oh, I'm from Egypt and I'm a Copt, that is a Christian from Egypt. And that was the reason her family came to this country as well. Hmm. Then other kids spoke about um, coming to this country to seek better lives for themselves. 
and their families. And that, of course, was like the the um, non-Puritans who were part of the original pilgrims. Yeah. And uh, so it was uh, it was really interesting to me that on Thanksgiving Day, uh, all these kids born in the four corners of the world felt profoundly American. Yeah, yeah, that is fascinating. And 400 years after the fact, we still have that same sentiment at the most beloved holiday in America. I think that's fantastic. The name of the book is Thanksgiving, the holiday at the heart of the American experience. And happy Thanksgiving, Melanie Kirkpatrick. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. All right. You take care. And thank you for listening. JanetMefford.com, our website. God bless you. We'll see you there. 